0: Don't touch that dial. All right, I'm finally bringing you the Behind the Bits podcast. I'm excited about this. I've been working on it for a long time. I've described this podcast about the tragedy and triumph of stand up comedy. And if you've been doing comedy at all, you know that you're going to have both. I've got two goals for the podcast. First, I want to talk to comics in all phases of their careers about their craft. Why do they do stand-up? How long did it take to get good at it? What's the writing process? How did you find your voice? All these questions. I'm hoping to bring new comics, comedy professionals, and comedy nerds all the advice and golden nuggets of information and inspiration that will help them be the best that they can be. Second, I'd like to build a community of comics that can share advice, bitch about the business, help everyone get booked, and just have someone to lean on when times get tough or celebrate with them when you have a killer show. So who am I? I'm Scott Curtis. I'm a 55-year-old guy who's been married for 31 years. I've got two grown kids and one cool grandson. I've started doing stand-up at the age of 50 because I'm a super late bloomer, and I just fell in love with it right away. Uh, I don't have any big aspirations for myself, but I've gotten to know a lot of comics who do. They, you know, they want to go somewhere in the business. So I want to be a helper, and I think this podcast can accomplish that in a big way. I'll probably talk more about my stand-up escapades and the life in general and future podcasts, but right now I'm just excited to get this one moving. I talked to my wife, Lisa, about the about doing this podcast, and she asked me who my dream guest would be, and without skipping a beat, I said, Tom Dreesen. You see, Tom was the first comic that ever caught my attention back when I saw him on the Mike Douglas show. Now, I was about 10 years old. And for you youngsters, Mike Douglas had a daytime talk show, kind of like Ellen, for like a million years. The rest of the story of my first Tom Dreesen experiences in the interview, so I won't bore you with it twice. So Tom Dreesen is my dream guest, and that's why I asked him to be my first guest. I was pretty surprised when he said yes and called me the very next week. Now, if I sound a little choked up at the start of the interview, it's because I was. That was a big deal to me. We talked a lot about his history, so I won't bore you with a long bio here. Here's what you need to know about Tom, though. He's been in the business for over 50 years. He was in the first black and white comedy team with Tim Reed um, and the last, and he was Frank Sinatra's opening act for 14 years. Now, let's let that sink in. He was so good at his craft that Sinatra wanted Tom to open for him all the way up until he retired. And he was so good that he could entertain a crowd that didn't come to see him. Obviously, they came to see Sinatra, but Tom would go out first and get the crowd ready, and they loved him. Okay, let's get this show on the road. Uh, but before we start, since this is a new podcast, I'd really appreciate a good rating on whatever platform you listen to your podcast, uh, iTunes, Stitcher, whatever. Uh, if you like it, obviously, if you don't like it, then maybe don't leave a rating yet. Also, please share it up with your friends and help spread the word. Um, you can follow us on Facebook at Behind the Bits Podcast, um, on Twitter at the btbpc it was hard to get a name so it's the BTB PC and on instagram at uh, behind the bits podcast i may do some other social media in the future but like i said i'm 55 years old and three of them are a lot for me thanks for listening to this long intro and here's tom dreesen Hey folks, welcome to the Behind the Bits podcast. This is Scott Curtis. I'm here with my first guest, Tom Dreesen. You may have heard of him. Hey Tom.
1: Hey Scott, how you doing?
0: I'm doing great. I just wanted to let you know about my history with you. So when I I think I was around 10 or 11 years old, I was watching the um, Mike Douglas show and You came on and did a bit about uh, somebody offering you drugs and uh, you saying uh, they say it makes makes you feel like the back of your head's falling off. And uh, (laughs) you came up with uh, your punchline was something like, uh, well, why don't you just hit me in the back of the head with a shovel? (laughs) Uh,
1: What it was was the bit I haven't done it in years, but I was at a party and a guy said, you know, pop this and sniff it. Uh-huh. I said, what does it do? He said, it's wonderful. feels like the whole back of your head's coming off. I said, why don't I just light up a cigarette and you hit me in the face with a shovel? You
0: know? <laughs> I mean, okay, so that hooked me. Um, I, you know, when you're 10 or 11 years old, you, you, you're you not concentrating on anything. And for some reason, you hit me as, as the funniest guy in the world. So I started just looking for wherever you were, like when you did Dinah Shore, Carson, Griffin... Um, you even did, like, Soul Train and American Bandstand. And, uh, you know, all I obviously there was no Internet, so all I had was a TV guide to tell me when you were on. <laughs> and um, did, you, you did a, a couple episodes of Midnight Special, too, didn't you?
1: Yeah, I, after my first Tonight Show, it changed my whole career. <clears throat> the moment I, I, I got bumped three times before I did my first Tonight Show, but I got on the fourth time, and that night it was a hot crowd. <clears throat> and, and johnny called me back through the curtain after i went through the curtain after my bow he called me back to take a second bow back through the curtain and and, and i n- have never stopped working since um this is my 50th year in show business i end up doing 61 appearances on the tonight show but from that point on i start doing Dinosaur, merv griffin mike douglas johnny cars i mean the midnight special rock concert soul train american bandstand uh and a Hollywood scores. I, I I was doing game shows, and uh, you know that 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 show just launched me. I, I ended up doing like over fifty Dinah, over fifty Merv Griffin, over fifty Mike Douglas. Uh, in and, and it was just it, it just and and in Soul Train, you know, I'm the only white comedian ever do um, Soul Train because I put an album out in front of an all black audience called "That White Boy Is Crazy."
0: That's a great I was album. The first
1: white comedian or the only white comedian ever to do an album in front of an all black audience.
0: Mm. <clears throat> And you—you you so, did that in Harvey. You recorded that in Harvey, didn't you?
1: I did. Yes, I went back to my hometown. Um, I was living out in California, but I went back and worked a little club called Benji's. That's no longer there, but because uh, I, I figured they'd be the—they'd be the the best critics of whether or not this material was good or not. Because it's people I grew up with, you know.
2: Right. No and, doubt. Uh,
1: and it was really—it was really fun, really exciting. But again, in those days, wherever you went in America. People say, "What do you do for a living?" And you say, "I'm a stand-up comedian." The next question out of their mouth would be, "Oh yeah? Have you ever been on Johnny Carson?" And if you hadn't been on Johnny Carson in the eyes of America, you just weren't a comedian. You might want to be one or going to be one, but you weren't one then. And so every we all, you know, flocked to the West Coast when Johnny Carson moved his show out to California in 1972. You know, by the time I got out here, it was 75, and by that time. Everybody knew one appearance on The Tonight Show and your life could change.
0: Right. Th- thinking about that, you know, uh, let's back up a little bit and talk about how you got started in comedy because everybody everybody who's a comic wants to know how everybody got started. How, how did that all start out for you?
1: You know, I, I had never thought of ever being in show business. It was the furthest thing from my mind. There was no way you could have ever told me that one day I'd be in this business. I, You know, I spent uh, I had, I grew up very poor in Harvey, Illinois, eight brothers and sisters lived in a shack, five of us slept in one bed, you know, mm-hmm. raggedy poor, um, holes in my shoes from the time I was, you know, you know, go, growing up my first pair of shoes till I, till I was <laughs> Navy, you know, yeah. I just was raggedy poor kid. I came out of the service and, and, um, uh, I spent four years in the service and then I came out and got married right away, kids coming and, and I, I worked construction. I went from job to job, um, Never being real happy in any of them, you know. Just getting good at whatever it was—from working construction to working on a loading dock to um, uh, being coming a teamster, and then dropping my card and becoming management, and uh, you know, and and then selling life insurance. I was a bartender. I was a photographer. I was a private detective. I had every job. <laughs> I've known the man, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but never happy with any of them. Never feeling quite fulfilled. Mm-hmm. you know and then uh i joined a civic group called the jcs the junior chamber of commerce and uh they taught you leadership training program and all that uh, programs and how to serve on a committee how to chair a committee how to how to uh, work projects that made the community a better place to live and in doing so you got leadership training program anyhow that is a long story, but I wanted to get to the point Was one of the problems of our community in those days were our youth using drugs as it is today. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote a drug education program that I want to run as a JC project. I wrote a drug education program teaching grade school children the ills of drug abuse with humor. It's a concept I had. Mm -hmm. And I had a a guy was going to help me in the JCs. His name was John DeBoer. He's a white guy. And The night I proposed it to the JCs that I wanted to run this drug education program as a JC program, um, the the JCs approved of it. They sanctioned it. And that same evening, a young black man came up to me and said, I would like to help you with that project. Uh, It's my first meeting here. I just moved in here from Norfolk, Virginia. And he joined the JCs and he wanted to help me. I said, gee, I already got a guy, but thank you. Uh-huh. And the next day, as fate would have it, John DeBoer, my friend, called me and said, I can't do it, I got a new job. I said, gee, what was that black guy's name? Oh yeah, Tim Reed. So I called him, and we start working on the project and uh, we went into the classrooms and the program became number one in 50 states and in 22 foreign countries. JC's used it as a model program throughout their publications on how to teach drug education at an elementary school level. And one day, a little eighth grade girl said, you guys are funny. You ought to become a comedy team. (laughs) You know, we used to do jokes off of one another. We played records, got the kids' attention, and then we'd plant the seeds. But as she was leaving the the classroom, she said, you guys are funny. You ought to become a comedy team. And two days later, we were talking about what this little girl said. And I, you know, we said, would you, he said, would you do it? I said, I don't know. Would you do it? We didn't know what to do. You know, there were no comedy clubs in America in those days. It was 1969. So we start writing what we thought was material, and you know we, we wrote for like three or four months. And finally, we got the courage of going to a nightclub, a jazz club, and ask if we could get up after the group took a break. And the owner said, yeah, sure, go ahead. And we went up. We bombed. We, we, we talked so fast.
2: Uh-huh. We were going 100
1: miles an hour. We just wanted to remember all of our lines.
2: Right. You know?
1: And we came off stage, and we got the owner in a corner, and we rushed him in a corner. How'd we do? How'd we do? What'd you think? What'd you think? He said, I don't know how you did. You never gave me a chance to laugh. <laughs> He said, come back tomorrow and slow down. So we came back the next night and we got big laughs, you know,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: that was, it was like an epiphany for me. The moment I, it was something I had written that got a laugh and when the room burst in the laughter, it was like an epiphany, like one of those B movies you see where the dark clouds open up and the sun burst through and you go, yeah, oh
2: yeah, yeah. this
1: is what I want to do. I want to be a comedian. And, and I, I mean, I. I,
0: I know I how that story. feels, Tom. I know how that yeah, feels. You, you, yeah,
1: Exactly. So does every comedian. <laughs> yeah. every, everybody who loves our profession knows that moment that you said, this is what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And, and to be honest with you, Scott, the next day, I couldn't sleep all that night. It was a Friday night. I got up the next morning and I went to church. Uh, there was no service. I, a Catholic church that I went to as a little boy, where I was an altar boy, where I sang in the choir. And it was a Saturday morning and I couldn't sleep all night. And I went and I prayed. I said, God, I now know what I want to do. And I was the only one in the church. It was a Saturday morning. Mm-hmm. And I said, I know what I want. I want to be a comedian. God, if you let me make my living as a comedian, I'll never ask for anything else. I'll do charities. I'm making all these promises because the thought that you could make a living making people laugh overwhelmed me. Right, And, um, and that's why it's 50 years in September. That was 50 years ago.
0: That's fantastic. Hey, can I ask you— And one? a little addendum. Yeah, I, uh, go ahead. Quick,
1: not to cut you off, Scott, but that was 50 years ago in September. In September, I went back to Chicago, to Harvey, Illinois, to Ascension Church, where I knelt and prayed as as, as a young—first time on stage comedian. And I went back and I gave a sermon to the congregation called The Power of Prayer, you know, Very good. how it has worked in my life. So, uh-huh. man, Everything has a circle, full that,
0: circle. That's that. That's fantastic. Uh, I wanted to get back with uh, when when you were doing um, the show with uh, Tim. Did you guys have like a writing process, or did you just you guys just bring ideas in and uh, shoot them around? How How did you guys get a, an act together?
1: We, you know, we we were so naive; we didn't know how to do it. We just started writing what we thought would, would you know would would make us laugh you know
2: mm-hmm. and
1: we were real real green at it we had a friend named Dicky Owings who had never he was a funny guy and he uh, a guy that I knew from grade school and so he started helping us and we'd sit down we'd try to create these kind of little vignettes you know
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: or where I took to him to meet my italian father uh a routine where Tim was teaching me how to be black. Um, You know, (laughs) a a, a, a lot of routines had nothing to do with race at all, Mm -hmm. but um, you know, we did a bit on the dating game and uh, then, you know, we had another routine where a guy who had a speech impediment was going into a fast food franchise, but they gave all the drinks and the sandwiches tricky, catchy names. You know? <laughs> it wasn't yeah. a hamburger, it was a magnificent Munchy Monster. It wasn't a, a Coke, it was a Bob's bouncing, bounding beverage. <laughs> they weren't French fries, they were Carol's crispy, crunchy crinkles. And, and yeah, just silly routines that we we put together and then little pattern in between and we were rookies and, and we stumbled and stumbled and stumbled mm-hmm. and failed and then got start getting better and better. And as time went by, uh, he was an insurance, I was an insurance salesman for Columbus mutual life insurance and he was a salesman for EI DuPont. So we knew how to get in offices. We knew how to sell, mm-hmm. you know, and you know, we would, we, we'd get ourselves in the situations where we had to deliver, and we finally started getting better. And I think what really turned us around was when we went on the Playboy circuit in those days. You know, in those days, you did four or five shows a night. You know, there were 17 Playboy clubs in America and two resorts, one at Great Gorge, New Jersey, and the other at Lake Geneva, mm-hmm. Wisconsin. And then the, the Playboy clubs are all over, you know, Boston, New York, um, Baltimore, Chicago, Los Angeles, Miami, um, Kansas City, Cincinnati. You know, we, we worked them all And you do four or five shows a night, and we started getting razor sharp timing, you know.
0: Right, right. So you guys really made history as being—you weren't you the first black and white comedy team?
1: We not only were the first, we were the last. Yeah. Never been one since. (laughs) You know, uh, that was forty. We broke up forty-five years ago, Uh but uh, we wrote a book called Tim and Tom: An American Comedy in Black and White what it was like touring the nation from 1969 to 1975, Uh uh, you know, in in the north and the south. No comedy clubs, so we worked all black clubs in the north and the south, what they affectionately call the Chitlin Circuit. Uh And then we worked all white nightclubs, too, you know. Right. And, um, And so we paid dues that no other act ever had to pay. We wrote a book about it that now Netflix is considering maybe doing a series about our Life, you know, the four- to six-part
0: series. Wow, that that would be great. And if folks don't know who Tim Reed is, uh, if you go back and watch uh, WKRP in Cincinnati, it's Venus Flytrap. And he's he's done a lot. He has so many acting credits. It's uh, as long as my arm. But uh, also a well, big fan for your fan younger audience,
1: he was also on a show called Sister, Sister. He played the father.
0: Oh, there and, you go.
1: Uh, he was on, you know, Simon and Simon. He played a character named Downtown Brown. He, I remember he's that, He's done yeah. a lot of
0: acting. Uh-huh. Yeah and so I know that uh, you were really enjoying the the comedy team with Tim and and he I think he decided to go on to try the acting career where did that put you
1: It broke my heart it was like a broken marriage when Tim um decided to break up the act I I, I had my, everything that I was dreaming of praying for hoping was this comedy team would be the best comedy team that America had ever known, that mm-hmm. we were going to go out and try to just, you know, knock the world on its on its heels uh, with our material. And when that broke up, I had never been on stage alone. And, and it just rocked my whole world. And and I, I sat in a bar one night drinking beer until <laughs> 2 o'clock in the morning. My buddy owned a bar, and I was thinking, what can I do? Uh, I was always real good at alternatives, so I'm, I'm looking, thinking I can either get another black guy and do the same act. Or I could go it alone and be a stand-up, or I could quit the business and get a job in a factory and make my ex-wife at that time happy because she hated show business and didn't want me in it. Wow. And, uh, and, and so I, I, I sat at the bar and I decided I was going to go it alone. I was going to try to become a stand-up comedian, make it on my own. And the tonight show would be my goal. <clears throat> and as I was sitting in the bar and my buddy was getting ready to close the bar up, he owned the bar And I thought I had read a book called PMA, Positive Mental Attitude, years Mm -hmm. ago. And in it, it said, if you know what you want to do in life, and if it's a noble endeavor, search your life and see if there's anything that can deter you from that noble achievement and then get that out of your life. And I sat at that bar and I'm drinking. I'm thinking, what could stop me if I wanted to make it to the Tonight Show? Mm -hmm. What could stop me, man, woman or beast? (laughs) And all I thought of was drinking because I like to drink beer. I used to Mm -hmm. love to drink beer. And I thought that might stop me not waking up with clear heads every day. So I pushed the they had two beers in front of me. I pushed them at the end of the bar and I said, I quit. My buddy said, quit for the night, Tommy. I said, I quit. He said, no, for the night. I said, no, I quit. And he went, yeah, right. Yeah. And I never touched another drop till I became famous, you know, became doing tonight shows and everything. Uh-huh. And then I, then I tried a couple of beers and it didn't taste like it used to. So I still don't drink to this day, you know. <laughs>
0: Well, that's you know that's that, that's one way to go at it get get rid of the stuff that uh, isn't going to work for you. Your home base at that point was still um, Illinois, and you decided to go to LA to to pursue that career. What changed? You know, obviously you've been you've been doing an act with Tim, and you guys have been writing together, and you. You're doing, you know, the skits, vignettes, and things like that. How did you start actually writing for yourself?
1: Well, I mean, I, I was in the habit of writing because I wrote for the comedy team, too, mm-hmm. you know. But but I, you know, I would MC sometimes local events, you know, uh, even when I was with the comedy team. Mm-hmm. And I'd always have to write a joke or two to open up the evening's festivities. So I kind of got into the habit of that. And then I started realizing what joke structure was. I mean, you know, and, and, and I got in the habit of writing, you know, and, and I got where I had five minutes. And right. then I got where I had 10 minutes. And then, then you get, you know, 15 minutes. And you know, when I got out to the West Coast, I kept trying out at the comedy store.
2: Because mm-hmm.
1: that was the only game in town out here in those days. That was 1975. And if you were going to m- make it out here... There was no improvisation in in Los Angeles at that time. There was no other clubs. There was a a couple of small kind of clubs, but the comedy store was on Sunset Boulevard, and it was the place to go. Mm -hmm. Every night, talent coordinators went into that club looking for new talent. You know, as I said earlier, the talent coordinators from the Johnny Carson, from the Tonight Show, from the Mike Douglas Show, from the Merv Griffin Show, from the Dinah Shore Show, from um, from Midnight's Best Show, from Rock Concert, Soul Train, American Dancing. They were all looking for comedians. Comedy was the rock and roll of the 70s. <laughs> right. People were getting discovered every night. but So you had to get on at the comedy store. And the pressure was enormous to pass the audition at the comedy store. Because Mitzi Shore, the woman who owned it, she was the one who you had to audition for. Well, it took me almost a month to even get an audition with her. Mm-hmm. To get the opportunity to get up on stage and for her to look at me. And the pressure... I can't describe it because if Mitchy didn't like you, it was time to go home. You had to go back to Toledo or Harvey, Illinois, or wherever you were from, because there was no other game in town right. that could launch your career. So that that five minutes I did in front of Mitchy after about a month was really pressure-driven. But I had enough material that that you know that I I, I got over you know.
2: Mm-hmm. But the
1: writing the writing aspect of it is when. If you're writing a joke, this is something you have to learn earlier. If anybody's listening who wants to write a joke, comedy is two things basically. Number one, it's nine-tenths surprise. Mm-hmm. The audience laughs because they didn't think you were going to say that or do that. So the setup line has to hide the punch line. And the other rule is there are no victimless jokes. Right. Who's the victim in the joke? You, society, um, the, your daughter's dating a punk rocker. Uh, uh, you know your wife's best friend. Uh, you, you know, somebody is the, is the victim in this joke. Let let me digress. When I was in the business about four months, I went to Mr. Kelly's in Chicago and there was a comedian named Mort Sal. He was very famous at the time and he was working Mr. Kelly's Mm -hmm. and I snuck backstage and I went to his dressing room and I knocked on the door and I, I figured his manager would answer and they'd throw me out. But he answered, he was all alone. He said, yeah, can I help yeah. you? I said, my name is Tom Dreesen, and I'm a new comedian. I wondered if I could talk to you for a few minutes. He said, Yeah, sure, come on in. And he talked to me for two hours before his next show. But he, wow. he gave me advice and counsel. But one of the things he said was, "Do you write your own material?" And I said, "Yes." He said, "Remember, they're wrong." And I said, <laughs> "Who?" He said, "They." I said, they. "He said, who are you writing about? They're wrong. Government, they're wrong. The airlines, they're wrong. You, you're wrong. Your <laughs> wife, you. Your mother-in-law. Who's wrong in this joke?
0: You know?" Right. <clears throat> one, of the, one of the things in the short time I've been doing stand-up I found is you got to be pretty ruthless on yourself. When something's not funny, even though you think it's funny, it's just not funny, and <laughs> you have to get rid of it.
1: Well, you know, but the other thing, too, is when, you, when you're working on new material, when you got to set 5 minutes or 10 minutes or 20 minutes when you're new, and you know that's good stuff. Mm-hmm. When you're working on new material, don't try that new material out on a Monday night in front of four people. You know, try that new material out on Saturday night in front of a packed house Mm -hmm. and put it in the middle, you know, work, work on your stuff that's already working and then get to the new stuff in the middle and then go home with your strong stuff. But give that new material a chance, you know, but if it isn't working, look at it clearly and say, did I, did I hide the punchline or did they see it coming? Mm -hmm. Or also did I, did I, um, was there not a clear enough victim in this joke, you know? Right. Or clear enough observation.
0: Mm, right. That's that's very 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 good advice. So when you were doing, you know, it took you a month for Mitzi to see uh, what 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 happened after that.
1: Well, then then when I, when she saw me, she said to me afterward, "Yeah, well, I can see you have stage presence and that you you um, uh, you, know, that you that you've done this before." So she put me on the schedule. Now the schedule was you went on like Tuesday night at one o'clock in the morning and then you went on you know you worked that for a while then you went on you finally got on maybe wednesday at, at like uh, uh 11 o'clock and then mm-hmm. pretty soon you're getting kind of prime time like 9 nine thirty, uh and weeknights and then then they put you on weekends and you're on at one o'clock in the morning again you know right. and then you worked your way to prime time till you became one of the mainstays at the comedy store in those days i was working every night with all these unknown comedians David Letterman, Jay Leno, Michael Keaton, Robin Williams, Gallagher. You know, the girl waiting tables was Deborah Winger, you know. Uh-huh. Um, these are new, new kids.
0: Yeah. I recognize a few of those names.
1: I, I don't know where they're at today, but I'm doing Scott Curtis's podcast. Yeah. Right there.
0: <laughs> As Bob Zane would them. say, you've derived, baby. <laughs> Obviously, one of the uh, one of the talent coordinators from Carson saw you for the Tonight Show, and you you, you got your break. I mean, it took it took three uh, bumps to get you there, but uh, you you finally got your break. After well, that
1: was not Let me set you up. Okay. They didn't come to see me until I pestered them to come and
0: see. Oh, okay.
2: You,
1: you know, th- th- it wasn't like they were hanging out one night, and I was lucky, and I got up. Uh-huh. You you either had to have an agent. And if you didn't, then you had to take over. If, if the mountain doesn't come to the man, the man must go to the mountain.
2: Right. You know?
1: So I, I just, I pestered the hell out of the of Craig Tennis, one of the coordinators at the Tonight Show. I mean, I gently did it. You know, I had been a salesman and I knew how to do that. But I I, I won him over and got him to come and see me uh, one night. And, and, and I scored that night. Mm-hmm. And then he called me in the office. I, I tried out that night that he, he came to look at, some new acts a, a comedy team called Eston a new kid named Billy crystal and me <laughs>
2: yeah
1: and I don't I don't know what ever happened to Billy but yeah <laughs> anyhow my my point is is that, that I scored that night then he called me into his office and he said okay I saw you do 20 minutes show me what five you would do if I put you on the tonight show and I did a five minute routine in front of him and he said okay take out that one joke try mm-hmm. it again and, and I put a new one in and pretty soon he said okay you're on next Tuesday you know and, uh-huh. and that's when I you know, for a week you don't eat. You know,
0: yeah, eat no that, doubt. You,
1: you go over your routine because in those days, twenty-six million people watch that show. Uh-huh. You know, not not like today, but twenty-six million people. One appearance and your career was launched. Freddie Prince got a sitcom the next day after he did his first Tonight Show. Right. The next day, I was signed to a CBS development deal the next day after I did my first Tonight Show. A guy named Lee Curlin from New York was with CBS. He happened to be watching a Tonight Show, and he contacted. Uh, me on the West coast. And you know, William Moore more assigned me the next day. I'm in the unemployment line one day <laughs> with a wife and three kids in the unemployment line. And the next day, my whole life changed. Wow. You know, and Sammy Davis, Jr. took me on the road for three years. I mean, it, the, I can't tell you how much power that show
0: had mm-hmm. in those days. So, you know, I, I, obviously I, I came to see you in Valparaiso when you did your, uh, your Sinatra show and, uh, tell me a little bit, you know, you worked for, you know, Sammy Davis wanted you to do a couple shows and then, uh, I think Frank stole you. how, how did that all come about?
1: Well, first of all, let me explain to your audience when you're saying that you saw me doing my Sinatra show. Mm-hmm. So they don't think I'm a Sinatra singer in person. No, right.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I toured with Frank Sinatra for 14 years in 45, 50 cities a year. And I now do a 90-minute show called An Evening of Laughter and Stories of Sinatra. So I do it in theaters where I do stand-up comedy. I do stand-up comedy for about a half hour and then I segue to a bar and as you know, there's a bottle of Jack Daniels on the bar, which is Frank's pick cricket choice.
2: Right. And I start
1: telling stories, and pictures come on the screen, authenticating the stories. It's my life story, but pictures and video, it, it, to, you know, come on the screen, taking you to all throughout my career to Fani to touring with Frank Sinatra. And,
0: and I, I don't want to, I don't want to stroke your ego too much, but you talk about not sleeping. After I saw your show and I met you, I didn't sleep that night. I just, uh, I just laid awake and thought about it. So. <laughs> oh,
1: that's well, I'm. I'm glad. I'm glad an, that's what you want to do. You, as an as an entertainer, you hope that you reach people. The, right. the, I've always thought that a good comedian could make you laugh for an hour and a half, but a great comedian can make you laugh and cry right. in an hour and a half. And I only saw two comedians do that: Richard Pryor and Red Skelton.
2: Mm-hmm. And I
1: always wanted to do that and in my one man show. That, as you know, I I have them laughing, laughing, laughing. But then I take them to some serious points in my life. The, the comedy team, as well as. And the dues we paid as well as uh, Sinatra, to the joy of that, to funny being a pallbearer at his funeral mm-hmm. and having to speak at his funeral and have him in tears and then bring him home with a, a funny monologue.
2: You know? right.
1: that, that shows a real challenge. But how your question was, how did I meet Frank? I was touring all over the country with, with, the, you know, I mean, I was touring with every artist. In those days, if a comedian could work clean, a lot of headliners wanted you to open for them because they brought in families you know and so they they needed a comedian that wouldn't that wouldn't work blue you know mm-hmm. for your people listening who do not know what blue means i mean comedians know it means using f- curse words or foul material right. you know so i was in demand because I was doing all these TV shows, they saw me working clean. Sammy Davis Jr. took me on the road for three years, but Mac Davis took me on the road. Tony Orlando and Don took me on the road. Frankie Avalon, I worked with him a lot, but he's a good buddy of mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, James Darren. Um, um, I'm trying to think of you know different artists at all. Every, every time I turned around, somebody else was hiring me to open for them. And then Smokey Robinson, uh, was also a dear friend, Smokey Robinson hired me. To work with him, and I'm turning around the country with Smokey. Wow! And and then Frank Sinatra was appearing next door at Harris Hotel when we were working at Caesars in Lake Tahoe. Uh-huh. And and as you know, because I explained this in the one man show, that I rushed over one night after my show at Caesars with Smokey. I got off stage and I didn't even change out of my stage clothing. I ran over to Harris so I could catch Frank Sinatra. And uh, uh-huh. as I was running in the showroom, the, the vice president of Harris Hotel saw me. And he was talking to a big guy with a cigar, and he said, Tommy, come here quick. And I came over, and he said, Tommy, this is Mickey Rudin, and I recognized the name. That was Frank Sinatra's lawyer. He said, Mickey, this is Tom Duce, and I think Tom would make a great opening act for Frank Sinatra. And the lawyer got a pained expression on his face that he heard that a million times. Uh-huh. And he said, he winked at the vice president, and I caught the wink. And he looked at me, he said, hey, kid, if I gave you a week with Frank, would you want more than 50,000? I said, Mr. Rudin, put it this way. If you gave me a week with Frank, would you want more than 50000 And he started laughing and laughing. Yeah. He said, I like this kid. And, and a week later, they gave me a week with Frank at the Golden Nugget in Atlantic City. And the second night I worked with him, he and his wife, Barbara, took me out to dinner. And I can remember like it was yesterday. He pushed his knife on his fork aside. He was eating. He said, I like your material and I like your style. I'd like you to do a few other dates with me if you're interested.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And
1: I didn't say, let (laughs) me go check my calendar, you know, (laughs) 14 years.
0: Wow. That's, I mean, what a story. And, and I know that, uh, you know, you you had the CBS development deal and people approached you for, for other deals, but, uh, you just really, you really enjoyed what you were doing. So you, uh, you kept it up and, uh, you got to respect that.
1: But here's the thing, Scott, and every comedian should hear this. Yeah, I really enjoyed what I was doing, but I knew I had to continue to grow as an artist. So I kept writing, and I would come home, and, 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 uh, and the moment I came off the road working Caesar's Palace or the Riviera Hotel or the, the Desert Inn, the Sands Hotel, these big major venues, the moment I came back to L.A., I would sign up to go to the Comedy Store or now the Laugh Factory, mm-hmm. and i do it. This I've been in the business 50 years. Last Saturday, I went to the Laugh Factory with my notes, and I tried out new material. Wow. You know, you, you, you we never stop learning in this business, and we never, in my opinion, you never arrive. Right. You never solely make it, you know, wh- whatever you think. You know, we're always growing as an artist, and so you should continue to keep working on new material, keep writing new material, and, and uh, continue to what I call staying oiled. Right. You know?
0: Um, I really you know, sometimes
1: feel it's good to t- take time, time off, but also, right. it's also good to, to stay oil. You know?
0: Yeah. And, and writing's as easy as having a notebook or now with smartphones, having a recorder close by and just take, taking the notes and writing them. I feel like comedy, you know, just, uh, the sets I've done, if, if you go out and have your best set ever, have a really great night when it's over, you're right back to zero. And you have to do that again the next night and the next night and the next night in order to, and, and like you said, you never arrive. You're just going, you're going on to the next gig.
1: That's right. Yeah. You, you know, <clears throat> It's this way. When I made it to Mr. Kelly's and in Chicago, and that was a, a big club one as a single. When I went back to work, Mr. Kelly's opening night, I was really nervous because I'd been with the comedy team for years and I, I was afraid the press would say, Tom without Tim is not an act, you know, maybe something like that. So I was, I was, you know, waiting. I went on and I scored and all the media was there. In those days, the critics, you know, Skaga uh, Tribune, the Skaga Sun-Times, the uh, uh, Skaga Today, there was like the Skaga Daily News. There was like five or six newspapers in there at that time. And then there's a variety magazine. And so, you know, all the critics were there and I scored. Mm -hmm. And some of them came backstage and said, wow, you know, we're really good and congratulations. And, and, and I knew that I was going to get the reviews and they left and I was sitting in there and I was thinking, wow, man, wow. I, I, I did it tonight. I got them Uh and I hear knock, knock, knock five minutes, Mr. Dreesen, a brand new audience is out there. Right. A brand new. So your options up all over again. Yep. You know, uh, Dick Sean once said most people live from day to day, Singers live from song to song. Comedians live from joke to joke.
0: You got it.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> Your option is up at the end of every joke. Yeah, exactly. so you're right. It, 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 yeah. it, you're right. It's, you, never, you never arrive. Right. But bask in the glow of the nights you kill. Remember that warm feeling, that wonderful feeling. You know, Because once you know that you can do this and that the material is good and it got good reaction, then if you have a bad night, an off night, you don't go into a turmoil because you know this stuff works and you know you work. right? It it just was a, you know, might've been a bad setup in the room. Might be just a a, a tough audience. Al Jolson used to say, there's no such thing as a bad audience, only a bad performer. Mm -hmm. Al Jolson's full of it. I met a lot of bad audiences.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I've seen a few myself. I wanted to get into, because you've stayed current and you still work with uh, some, you know, when you do your uh, fundraising and all that, you still work with uh, the younger guys sometimes. And I wanted to, so you know what's going on, how do you feel that comedy has changed since you started, and how do you feel like it's kind of stayed the same?
1: Well, I mean, the the way it changes is dramatic, in in my opinion. You know, the other reason I go to the Laugh Factory on weekends when I'm off the road is they have Young Black, couples, young white couples, young Asian couples, young Latino couples, you know. Um, the, the, so I want to stay in touch with this younger audience as well, mm-hmm. you know. And and on the, the bill, there's always a lot of other young comedians. And the difference is, is that when I started out, the only way you could get known was doing national television.
2: Right. And that meant you had
1: to work clean. You had the right material that could make grandma and grandpa, mom and dad, and the kids laugh. Uh so you really had to really know it was real creative writing you know and 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 so you had to you had to you know the problem with the f word is that it's a noun it's a pronoun it's an adjective it's an (laughs) adverb and so you can go there anytime you can't think of something funny to say a clever adjective i'll give you a, a, a funny true story i was at the laugh factory about a year ago and I was getting, I was upstairs getting ready to go on. And I was around the corner looking at my notes and, and around the corner, there were two young comedians who didn't know I was there. Uh And one of them said, you know, Tom Dreesen is here. And the other comedian said, yeah, you know, he's old school. (laughs) The other comedian said, he's old school. You know, you know, what do you mean? He said, well, he doesn't use the F word. And the other comedian said, he doesn't use the F word what does he use for adjectives? And I stuck my head around the corner and I said, adjectives, Right. you know, that's what I use for adjectives. Right. So, I mean, I I say that, but that, that's the difference that you, you know, now can I work blue? I can do a stag roast with the best of them. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I've I've done stag roasts for only guys and you can be as blue as you want. Um, But I couldn't make any money doing that. And when I started out, that's the way you got to be known by working clean mm-hmm. and writing, you know, clean, creative material. And also, I started doing a lot of corporate dates where the money really is at. Right. You know, uh, corporate dates, you know, you don't have to worry about, are you drawing? Are, are many tickets sold? You, you go out there and there's already a built-in audience and they're paying you more money you can make in, in a month in a comedy club. Right. And, and, uh, and so, but you, you couldn't offend their clients or, you know you know you had the right material that could make everybody there laugh you know without offending um you know the, the president of the company's you know clientele and stuff like that
0: mm-hmm. for for my act i work uh almost totally clean and i've i've let the f words slip a couple times and it just doesn't work for me and and some of the younger comics talk to me and say you know i really need to do a clean act so I can get on more shows. And I'm like, well, all you got to do is just uh, drop some of those words and some of that material and you'll be fine.
1: <laughs> well, it's, it's, you know, creatively, it's easy to go there. You know, mm-hmm. when you can't think of anything, you know, a lot of, a lot of the um, comedians, when it, they first started doing the, see, here's what changed was cable television. Right. And in, in the days when I started out, television wasn't that big. So, you know, you again had to work clean when cable came along and you could work as blue as you want and, and still draw. You could work blue as you want and maybe sell out arenas that changed the whole course of comedy. Right. You know, and then young. See, when I started out, every one of those people in that audiences were sophisticated they knew what stand-up comedy was about because they had seen Jack Benny's and Bob Hopes and, and George Burns and, and Johnny Carson at night. And, mm-hmm. you know, they had seen these clean comedians across the country. Danny Thomas and work and do an hour of stand-up comedy and not, not swear once. So they they were judges. Today, young kids grow up watching Comedians using the f word and every and mm-hmm. all sorts of sexual references, and and they think when they're eighteen, 18, 19 years old, and they go to their first comedy club and they hear these comics working like that. They say, "Oh, that's comedy." Oh, I see. You can swear in public as yeah. much as you want, and that that's adult, right. you know. And they thought they think, "Wow, that's what stand-up comedy is."
2: You know? mm-hmm. and, but
1: you know, I tell them, you know, it, 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 about the anytime you use an adjective in your act more than once it starts to lose its effect right about the 15th time you said the f-word i got it you 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 you, you, the shock value wears off
0: yeah yeah it's it's just part of the background at that point i wanted to bounce something off of you i i uh I actually produced my first show last week. It was a Thursday night and it was a new club. And I had a headliner that was, uh, he's from my area, but he was, uh, he's, he's quite a bit more seasoned than I am. And we did, we did the show and, and it went pretty good, but we were talking after the show and he mentioned something that I never thought about. He said that most people discover comics now on YouTube or like netflix or something like that they don't see them live so they don't know how to act when they are in a live situation so they don't laugh as much have you have you seen that no okay I mean, I, well you're, you n- n- i mean you're a superstar so th- that's a little different
1: for well you. no it's, I'm, I'm not <laughs> i'm not but thank you but no uh-huh. I, I don't think i don't think that that's the, the the truth that they don't know how to you know. Um, what sometimes, uh, I mean, the room is not set up right. A lot of times, you learn this as you get older mm-hmm. in comedy that there's certain rooms that are set. Let me give you an example. The Laugh Factory in Los Angeles is the best comedy room. It's intimate, the people are right to the stage. Mm-hmm. There's a low ceiling. You know, laughter right. is sound, it hits the ceiling and comes back at you. You know, if you're. In, in a room that has a real high ceiling, that's not good. If you're outdoors, it's even tougher. Because mm-hmm. we set our timing off of their laughter. Right. And the fuller the sound, you know, the, the, the better it is. I, I, when I opened for Sinatra, I used to work 20,000 seat arenas where 20,000 people and you were in the round. Right. They were all around you. <laughs> you know, it wasn't like you, there was a proscenium where they're out in front of you. Uh-huh. They're around you. So you had to learn to walk the stage and all. So sometimes the logistics of the room make the difference you know right uh, but but and and sometimes the size of the audience you know and and laughter is infectious people start laughing at the others laugh you know when you go into um a, a, a small room most people do not want to share their laughter it's like their tears you know uh-huh. if you had a big <laughs> big laugh <laughs> you know Somebody might, your, like your wife or your, or if you're a woman, your husband say, "Honey, keep it down." You know, uh, whenever I see somebody in an audience doing that to somebody, I'll go say, "Hey, hey, hey, leave her alone." You laugh as much as you want. <laughs> yeah, you, no, know, no. you know, I I, I make jokes, but going that's a long answer to a short question. I, I don't think that that um, people watch us off of YouTube and not, you know, they they don't know how to react when they come into it. now if they heard the same joke,
2: mm-hmm. you know,
1: you. See, that, this is the other dilemma of the comedian, why the magician is so, we are so awed by the magician. Because he never shows you how he did the trick. Right. If he showed you how he did the trick, the next time you saw it, you'd go, oh, you wouldn't applaud because you know how it's done. Right. With the comedian, once he shows you the punchline, you now, you laugh the first time because you were surprised. Mm-hmm. The next time, you know it's coming. Yeah. You know. So if you've watched somebody do all of their act on on a, on a YouTube and then you go see them in a club and they're doing the same material. Well, you've, you've heard it already.
0: You know? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's cool. It's live, but yeah, I, I've seen that a couple times, but most of the, most of the comics I see like to put some new stuff out. So that, that definitely makes for a better show. One but, of the, but
1: also th- think about the room. Here's the other thing too. Mm. If there's empty seats in the room, <clears throat> if there's a gap between you and the audience, you know, the, your energy, if you're a singer, a juggler, a comedian, you're on stage, your energy, and you're trying to take your energy from your routine to the audience, going all the way through the audience and back up to you, mm-hmm. back to the audience and back up to you. That's like an electrical current that you're, you're going with this audience, right? Now, if there's gaps in the audience or waiters and waitresses waiting on people while you're trying to do your act, it's like taking a scissors and cutting that electrical current
2: uh-huh. from
1: happening so the more, see, why I like to work theaters, when you saw me in Valparaiso, did you see any waiters and waitresses walking around? Did no. you see any, any, <laughs> any, any the, the, the audiences right in front of me? Right. Because that was set up for comedy. That mm-hmm. was set up perfect for performing. You know, people, if they had a drink, they had it out in front. Then they come in and sit in the theater. That's the best place to work. Right. When we were comedy rooms or stuff like that, and waiters and waitresses are serving drinks, they're constantly interrupting your flow.
0: Mm-hmm. You know? Yep. Yep. Yeah. I. So that's I why agree my with corporate that.
1: dates, I have it in my contract. I don't go on during dinner. I don't go on during dessert. I don't go on at all till all the dinners and the waiters and waitresses are out of the room. They're not pouring coffee. They're done with all that. And so I always insisted after when I do a corporate date that after dinner, the president of the company or somebody gets up and does a little talk so the audience can start focusing to that center stage and then finally the waiters and waitresses are queued to get out of the room and when they're all settled down then introduce me
0: because mm-hmm.
1: if you introduce me while they're eating dinner or waiters and waitresses I'm, I'm at the mercy of that and I know that doesn't work
0: right <clears throat> I'm on the the one of the same uh, groups as you the uh, one of the comedy groups and uh, the doby group and I wanted to i wanted to see if you'd expand on something that you've commented a few times so there's been a lot of uh, threads about the pc culture and how that's changing comedy and all that kind of stuff and it seems like your comments pretty much always the same are you funny can you expand on that and and tell people tell tell these comics how they can overcome pc and and all that stuff
1: well, I mean, so so everybody understands, the politically correct police are out there today and, you know, they'll, they're trying to destroy comedy.
2: Mm-hmm. Look,
1: we have the First Amendment in this country. You can say whatever you want to say. Now, we can say whatever we want to say. You don't have to listen to it. You can shut us off. Right. You can get up and walk out the door and ask for your money back. But they have the right to say it. And there's only one rule in comedy. Be right that's your only rule be funny now you're not going to be funny for everybody no comic is Uh you know and that's why some people say well gee i love so-and-so but i don't like so-and-so and And you know my favorite comedian is everybody has their own sense of humor which makes them laugh right but there's only one rule in comedy be funny are there things that are tasteless absolutely are there jokes that 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 i find repulsive Yes, but there are jokes Other pe- that, and, the, and the other people think that they're very funny. Right. So, you know, that's what it's all about. When you start telling comedians, okay, I want you to go out there and um, now, by the way, don't say this and don't say that. <laughs> don't bring up this and don't bring up that. You're putting them in a box. Right. And once you put that box and the lid on it, they're no longer that free-flowing comic like Robin Williams was. You know, people right. like that that once, once their heads went, they went any direction they wanted to go and that that was the genius of them you know now again you you you, you know the politically correct police you know uh, I, I I probably shouldn't do this but I'll tell you <laughs> you can go on the internet and and see uh, say Tom Dreeson rants on politically correct police uh-huh. it's a little short video I did I'm not going to tell you about it but your watchers or your listeners can go to uh, the internet, I think it's on YouTube, Tom Dreesen rants, R-A-N-T-S, rants about politically correct police. Mm-hmm. And it has a punchline to it. That, and I'm talking to four comedians at the time, by the way, right. uh, from Dobie Maxwell's
2: group, uh-huh.
1: you know, four good friends that are, that are, are Bill Gorgo and Nick Cosentino and, and, uh, geez, I can't remember all the guys, or, oh, James Wesley Jackson, mm-hmm. you know, um some it's four comedians I'm talking to and they videotaped it.
0: Right. Yeah. I, uh, Dobie Maxwell is one of the guys I want to get on, on on the podcast as well. And and we we've shared a couple messages and, uh, when he has some time, I'm definitely going to get him on. That group is fantastic. If you're learning to be a comedian.
1: Yeah. You should tell if, if you're a comedian out there listening, Dobie Maxwell has a Facebook page, um, What's the title of it? I think it's um.
0: Um, it's the the Maxwell Method.
1: Yeah, the Maxwell Method
0: of and comedy. Right on, I think yeah. he's got
1: about thirty five hundred comedians on it, and he's got you know senior comedians that will give advice, including Dobie, who's right. written a book about stand up comedy, and he and he's very talented and and uh, and is willing to help other comedians along their journey, and and I and I think all comedians should right men and women should go onto his page if you can. Dobie, but yeah the Maxwell Method.
0: Yeah, and it's it's just a great group. I mean, I've probably posted five times since I've been on there, but I just read everything. You just soak it all up. It's it's great stuff. Uh, speaking of that, you know, Dobie's done a lot of mentoring. Um, any any comics around uh, that you've mentored that uh, you, you feel pretty proud of?
1: Well, Tiffany Haddish is one. You know, I helped her when she was a little girl. Wow. Like 13, 14 years old, and and uh, she's a big star now. She's, she's blowing more up. More money than me. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. She's she makes about five, six million a movie now, and and uh, you know, God bless her. Uh, I, I, she's a wonderful young girl. But but I, I, my whole comedy career, I've tried to help other comedians because I remember what it was like when I was new, and and how grateful I was when somebody would try to give me some advice or counsel. I do a motivation speech. I give motivation talks at colleges and at, at universities, colleges, and, and corporate, for corporate America. And, and I, I talk on four subjects, perception, visualization, self-talk, and develop a sense of humor. Mm-hmm. But I also give that same talk to comedians, and, and, and I, I tailor it a little bit different, but I call it the joy of stand-up comedy and how to get there.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: and, and it's it, it, because this is the greatest profession on the planet, bar none. You think about what a stand-up comedian is, guy or girl, it's the greatest profession on the planet. You know, let me do a couple of things. One is to explain that the insurance companies of America many years ago did a survey around the world of the 10 fears of man. It took Mm. them eight years to complete this survey or something. But the 10 fears of man, death was fourth, pain was second. Getting up in front of an audience was number one fear of mankind. Wow. If you can get up in front of an audience and you can talk about being a house painter for an hour, you you can talk about being a lawyer or talk about being a bus driver or an architect for an hour, you're in less than 1% of the population of the world. If you can get up and make people laugh for an hour, you're in less than one millionth of 1% of the population of the world. No doubt. You know What you have is a gift. Mm -hmm. It's a great gift. Don't tarnish it. Laughter is healing. We no longer, it's no longer um, a theory. Um, A man named Norman Cousins wrote a book called Laughter Math. He wrote another book called The Anatomy of an Illness. And it it was because he was told he was going to die. The doctors told him he had a heart condition, that stress had caused his heart condition. He didn't have long to live. He laid in the Mm -hmm. hospital and he thought, if stress and negative input made me ill, then positive input should make me well. He checked out of the hospital. He'd only watch I Love Lucy reruns, Candid Camera, Three Stooges, The Marx Brothers. He'd listen to comedy albums. He never read the evening news. He never watched evening news. He never read the papers. He lapped himself to health. He lived 27 years after the doctors told him he was going to die. Wow! Because of him, UCLA did research. They know that laughter is psychologically a deterrent, that if you're laughing at a comedian or a record or something, you're not thinking of your problems. So it's, Momentarily, a psychological deterrent. If it also, because of him, UCLA did research and they found out that when the human brain laughs, chemistry is released from the brain into the bloodstream. So, laughter is not only psychologically uplifting, it's physiologically therapeutic. Mm-hmm. And after a hearty laugh, sometimes after a hearty laugh, and you've laughed so hard, and like tears rolling down your eyes, and you go, Oh, and a sense of well being comes yeah. over your body, your body's gone through an actual chemical change.
0: Right. Well, you can can feel the stress melt away when you do that.
1: Well, again, my point of that is if if laughter is psychologically a deterrent and physiologically therapeutic, then comedians are physicians of the soul. Yeah. So, you you know, you comedians out there, you who can do it, this is is the greatest profession on the planet. Don't destroy that, and that's what I try to tell them, with drugs and alcohol. Don't destroy that gift you have, you know. Uh-huh. with, 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 with and, 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 and tarnish the gift you have you know with like by, by ruining the, the organ that's most important in your body for comedy is your brain you know right and uh, and and the other reason I say this, is don't talk badly about other comedians do you ever exactly. if you ever went to a doctor and, and the doctor said uh, um, you know geez, doc i I, I, I was going to go to this doctor Peabody you ever heard a doctor say dr Peabody, I would go to that <laughs> bum they don't speak Poorly of their profession, right? Nor should we,
0: you know. Yeah, uh, I've I've experienced that a little bit because I uh, we, I'm in South Bend, Indiana, and we've got a comedy club here. And when I first started going up, everybody was nice to me, and it's a very supportive club. And people talk to you; they give you tips, and it's fantastic. I uh, I do a lot of traveling, and I uh, went to an open mic and nashville tennessee and they weren't so nice (laughs) and and, you know it's just uh it's just uh hot or cold but you might as well be nice be nice to everybody because somebody's going to get famous and uh you want to be on the right side of them when it happens
1: well that's one way to look at it but here's (laughs) the other way to look at it most comedians i mean a lot of comedians are envious of another comedian Mm -hmm. for whatever reason but Here's something you you got to learn. There's a great Hindu proverb. There's nothing noble about being superior to another human being. True nobility lies in being superior to your former self. Oh. Am I a better friend than I was last year? Am I a better son than I was last year? Am I a better husband than I was last year? Am I a better comedian than I was last
2: year? Uh-huh.
1: So that's who you're... So a lot of comedians are envious, you know, and, and they, they that's the one thing that you don't want to do is be envious of another comedian because he's not your competition. We all start out with certain comedians and sometimes they get ahead of us. They, in their career, they do the, uh, certain TV shows that you were wishing you could do or things like that, mm-hmm. you know, and so you get a little envious, but you're not in competition with that other person. You're, the rest of your life, your only competition is your former self. Listen to your tapes. Have I grown? Have i written new material in the last year. Right? Am I a better comedian than I was last year? That's your only competition. And the, keep in mind, comedy isn't a five k or ten k. It's a triathlon.
2: Oh yeah. I mean,
1: it's it, it, you, you're you never arrive. You always you always can get better. You
0: know. Yeah, that's that that is so true. Thank you for saying that. That uh, that's very very helpful. I really, um, you know, I've had you on here for about an hour, so I don't want to, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I had one last question that that I wanted to make sure I asked. Knowing what you know about the world today, would you, if you were just getting out of the Navy again and had the opportunity to do comedy, would you do it all over again?
1: Oh, I would have done it a lot sooner. You know? Uh huh. I, I w- <laughs> Oh, I wish. I wish I would have known when I was in the service. You know, I I always could tell a joke. I was real good at telling a joke. Right. Um, I could always, um, and I always was good with imagination. I could imagine how that could have been funnier. Somebody could tell me a joke when I was growing up, and and it would be kind of a chuckle, but I could figure out a way to make it funnier
2: sometimes, Uh
1: you know. And um, when I was a bartender, uh, I could tell stories about, like, everybody in the bar Knew all the customers, and so if I had Scott's permission, I, you know, if I didn't want to. I wouldn't belittle Scott, but I'd say, you know how Scott loves hearing, um, like Sammy Davis Jr. or somebody he loves mm-hmm. hearing Frank Sinatra. Then I, I could tell a funny story about you listening to a Frank Sinatra record when I I could, I could create funny stories mm-hmm. when I was a bartender, and I got tips better for that because I always have a funny story about right. customers um, and about their idiosyncrasies, especially when they drink. So but I didn't know that I could ever do this on on stage. If I if I would have known when I, and the other thing, let me digress to that. I went to Catholic school, none of us didn't reward you for ad They <laughs> they'd whip that ruler out on you hardly. But, but I wish somebody would have seen that in me as a child as a young boy and maybe got me to a performing arts school. Mm -hmm. I I dropped out of high school when I was 16 years old and I ran away from home and a lot of other things, you know, that I I, I did. I wish somebody would have seen that in me when I was younger and said, Hey, you know, you, you, you've got a talent." I encourage parents all the time when they tell me, gee, my daughter, she just loves to sing. She's seven years old, eight years old. She sings in front of the TV. And I tell them, develop that, Mm
2: -hmm. develop
1: that, encourage that, you know, and, and that, if, 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 when, when you know, Freddie Prince was my friend. Uh, he later committed suicide, mm-hmm. his soul. but he went to a performing arts school in New York, kind of like the movie, like the TV show Fame. Right. I wish I could have gone to a high school like that, you know, and, you know, that would have been, I wish I had learned a lot, a lot, I wish I had started a lot sooner in answer to your question.
0: Right. I, you know, I hear you so much. If, if that would have happened to me, I probably would have started before I was 50, so. But I, sure. I've always loved art and I am not good at anything art wise, except for comedy. And I didn't know that, you know, I tried painting, I tried drawing, I tried uh, playing instrument, tried singing. I, I just, I can't do any of that. And, you know, when I finally found it, you know, it was, I I gotta say, it's great. You, you It's just like what you said at the beginning, you kind of understand your reason for being
1: yeah, well, you know, I, I knew <clears throat> that moment that I got a lap on stage, that that's what I was put on this planet to do, in right. my opinion. You know, and I thank God every single night of my life. I That's no joke. Every night, you know, I you know, I tell you something that I wouldn't tell anybody, but I, not that I'm, I'm embarrassed by it, but I have, mm-hmm. I do evening prayers every night before I go. I, I pray for people that I hear
2: mm-hmm. are
1: ill or, you know, I have a prayer list. And if somebody tells me, gee, my wife is going to chemotherapy or something like well i put them on my prayer list mm-hmm. but I, I i but every night i thank god for finding this profession for me right. i make a living at what i love to do oh i mean i to, to this day i mean i love show business i hate getting there it's it's the yeah <laughs> it's the travel that it wears <laughs> you out but yeah but i'm making a living at what i love to do how many people can say that
0: right I've already told you this, but you know you inspired at least one guy he's a late bloomer, but uh you you definitely inspired me, and you'll always be my first Tom.
1: <laughs> well je i I can't tell you how that makes me feel yeah
0: yeah it's... <laughs>
1: no, no, no but i'm I'm glad you know that, that what, you know one of the if you could be in any profession and earn the respect of your peers, I think that that's I think that's a noble achievement, Right. you know, because uh, we we are in a cutthroat business. You know that it's a, it's a, you know, people are striving to to succeed and sometimes they want to step all over you to do that, you know, but if you can last in this business, uh, and make a living in this business and then earn the respect of your peers, that's, uh, that, that
0: makes me feel real good, mm-hmm. and that which should make anybody feel real good. Right, right. Well, I, I can say, Tom, that when I was uh, bouncing this idea for a podcast off my wife, she said, okay, who's your dream guest? And I, of course, said, Tom Dreesen, and, and you're my first guest. So I guess I can just do the one episode and be done with it then, huh?
1: That's it. It's all over, Scott. <laughs> yeah. There's no sense going any further. Yeah,
0: it makes it easy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I wish you the best. And and I'm sure, and tell Dobie Maxwell that you, that, uh, or I'll tell Dobie that I did your podcast and, uh, and, and, and put that on, on Dobie's, um, uh, page you know i will all the other comedians
0: here, yeah right? i will i'm gonna i'm gonna start tapping that for some some great interviews i i i, I like to keep a low profile b- before i actually launch it and uh, i want to get those four good interviews done and then we'll we'll get this baby going and uh hopefully they'll roll in like i want them to good yeah. Yeah. Wish I, you the best. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me, Tom. This is this has been almost as good as meeting you in person.
1: <laughs> okay, well <laughs> I'm I'm glad I'm glad you feel that way.
0: Yeah, and a lot a lot of great advice here. Um thanks so much, Tom. This is this is uh one of the I probably won't sleep tonight, so
1: <laughs> <laughs> well then I, I may I recommend just a little bit of, of uh of the mild uh, sleeping, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: I'll, I'll take a look at I, that.
1: Okay, buddy. you take. Thanks care, so guys. much, Tom. Bye, bye. Okay, take care.